unusual start to the morning. Uh, we've, got, we've got some things kind of changed up, flipped around a little bit today. Uh, it, it's, it's an unusual morning in that for, for the first time in my memory, every person that we normally have on the schedule for sound and every person that we normally have this on the schedule for words is out of town. So Bob scrambled over from video to sound. He's done that before. But on words today, uh, Gibby Urban, who, who helps with, uh, with words and media for, uh, for both the student groups, or just yeah. for both the student groups, is back there today. So that's really cool. Yeah, I thank him for that. And honestly, thank his mom for driving him over. That was <laughs> awesome. So, uh, but yeah, so it's fun, to, it's fun to slot in some new people and give them that opportunity. And then we moved up the music for a reason. So kind of just shifted all over the place. You yeah. might have shown up this morning. I wasn't at the door and you thought, oh, he's not here today. No, he's here. Today he was playing producer, which was kind of fun. <laughs> Ready in three, two, one. All right. So it was a good time. But anyway, good to see you this morning. You How too. are you? Good. Good. I'm terrified for tonight. Clearly, I'm wearing my favorite superheroes jersey. I um, asked a couple Bears fans who they're playing today, and nobody could coach. tell me. Uh, well, because they're predicted to lose by ten. So I think if they who are if, they playing? The, the Packers. Oh, oh, I those guys. Well, I wouldn't wear this if it was the, just a normal. The week. Packers did great last week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, which just means that the wrath of Rodgers is going to be all I that hear much you. worse. So I hear you. I really think though. Because the Bears are predicted to lose by 10, if they lose by 9 or less, I think it should count as a win in the book. I really do. I mean, they should just start switching this. Make the game more fair, people. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what to say. You know, we've, we've gone to grading on a curve in professional sports. This is Well, just for the Bears. Phenomenal. Only for the this Bears. This is phenomenal. That's okay. <laughs> well, and, and you've had a, a fun week of school. You've, been, you've had some cross-country meets. I mean, your kids have done yeah. well. But, and when I say your kids, it's weird because you have your kids, the ones you teach, and your kids, the ones you teach. So, and so it's kind of fun to be cheering for both teams, so to speak. Yeah, I've gotten some nasty looks this week. Yesterday was the big <laughs> Troy invite, which is like the biggest junior high invitational in the I area. I remember when you were in that. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, and I wasn't running near the times that they were yesterday. <laughs> my goodness. They were flying. Um, but yeah, so I'm cheering on my kids, you know, the kids that are on my team at Shanahan. But then every now and then, there are these blue jerseys uh, that pass by that say Manuka on them. And the, I mean, those are like arch rivals, right? They're like three times our size, and I'm supposed to be rooting against them, maybe sticking a foot out to trip one of them. Uh, I don't do that yet. Um, but yeah, then the, you see like Henry Kuchar run by, and come on, Henry, Henry, okay, go get that kid, go get that Henry kid. <laughs> And the next one, you know, comes by, and it's Vaughn. Vaughn, uh, I feel so bad. So at this meet, they give um, awards, medals, for the top 25 runners. Vaughn finished 26th. Oh. He finished 26th. And the reason I even bring that up is not to, like, you know, re rehash the pain for him, but the kid ran a 12.15. Which means, I mean, he's running a six-minute mile. I do that, that from, from the couch to the fridge. Yeah, right. I can do that. I almost <laughs> want to give him, like, forget the medal. Let's, let's go to Portillo's and get that kid a beef sandwich wow. today or something. Because <laughs> he cruised. He should have. Oh. But, yeah, it's, it's really hard to be like, yeah, let's go, Vaughn. All right, now all four of my runners that are behind him, go catch him. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's so fun. That's awesome. Well, obviously... Cross country is a, is a sign that fall is here. Yes. I woke up this morning at 6 o'clock. It was pitch black. Over the summer, there was light. I'm driving to church, and 
driving through the bean fields on either side of McKinley Woods, and they're turning their beautiful golden instead of the green of summer. We can mm -hmm. see that change starting, which means what? It's time to talk about Christmas. So here we are, right? We are we're really excited about Christmas. Sam's it's coming. Is, Sam's is in full swing. I walked in expecting to see a bunch of Halloween stuff, and no, they are full go on Christmas already. Got the lights, got the decorations, the inflatables. We're ready to go. We have a number of ways that we love to celebrate the birth of Jesus. I'm going to tell you, this is one of those unusual years that Christmas is on a Sunday. If you've not been with us when Christmas has been on a Sunday before, you might wonder how we handle that, and I'm just going to tell you outright, okay? I kind of believe that if it's Jesus' birthday, we should probably meet. The idea that, that we would take off Jesus' birthday because it's Christmas and we want to stay home is sheer absurdity. I'm making no judgment on everybody else that's going to do that. Yes, I am. But anyway, we, we still have church open on Sunday, even though it's Christmas Day. So we got that piece coming in. But we want to kick off the whole season with, uh, with just a really fun, rousing children's program, kids' program. Students are doing this. So uh, we're going to be having a play that's going to be breaking the news from Nazareth. We're going to be holding it on a Friday night, which is going to be kind of a, a different feel for us. And there are going to be kids of all ages involved. So I would say you need to look at your update in order to go ahead and sign up for that. But we went one step better. It got its own email, yeah. flat out, its own email, so that it's not buried in there, and you're wondering, where is it? My kid wants to do this, whatever. Uh, so it's got its own meal, email, and the, the reason we're, we're pressing it right now is because auditions are coming up very, very quickly. How quickly are they coming up? Have you looked? <laughs> nope. Uh, <laughs> Like literally this week, right? They're, they're this week. They're, they're this, this week. week. They're this they're Friday. They're this week, yes. So uh, I, 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 I knew that, but I still checked. I wanted to make sure. They're this week. So if your kids want to be involved in that, you got to get them signed up for an audition. When you click that link, or you can go straight to events on our website. Either way, you'll find uh, a little set of lines that they need to learn and, and in order to go ahead and, and do their audition. It's going to be a great, great time. Yeah, I love that we do auditions because it gives kids practical, uh, like a practical experience and, and, you know, going for a part that they might not get, but they're, you know, placed into something else. So I think we, we do a good job of making sure that kids fit into, fit into some good spots. But the other thing I like about our play being earlier than Christmas and it not being the specific Christmas program is it gives you another opportunity to invite family. Mm -hmm. come, and watch the come and watch the play, hear the story, and then if you want to know more, come back in a week and a half and, and join us for that Christmas We're service. kind of beating the season a little bit. I like yeah. that. It's going to be the, the opening of the season mm -hmm. as opposed to a couple weeks in, and now everybody's got all their Christmas yeah. bustle going. They're like, oh, man, I don't know if I can make it or whatever. So this is a, you know... Right after Thanksgiving, the turkey's still yeah. settling, and you get to come and start to celebrate the birth of Jesus. So uh, make sure you go ahead and get signed up for that. I really don't want to stress much of anything else today because I want that to be the prime thing in your brain. I want that to be the thing that you take away today. So make sure that you get signed up. And the urgency, of course, is that auditions are this week. So I know, I know, I know the way things go around here. Uh, that, that people have a tendency to go ahead and sign up uh, three weeks after it's closed what do you or mean? something like that. So, all right, you got it? Very good. I want to go ahead and move toward, uh, move toward communion, and we're going to do that with Bible. Go ahead and get it. 
And um, we're going to be looking at Psalm 119 again. And I want to use Psalm 119. You're going to be doing verses 25 to 48. So these are the verses that you had the chance to, to read during the week. Um, read these to us, and then we're going to talk a little bit about how this applies to our time of communion today. I lie in the dust. Revive me by your word. I told you my plans, and you answered. Now teach me your decrees. Help me understand the meaning of your commandments, and I will meditate on your wonderful deeds. I weep with sorrow. Encourage me by your word. Keep me from lying to myself, and give me the privilege of knowing your instructions. I have chosen to be faithful, and I have determined to live by your regulations. I cling to your laws. Lord, don't put me to shame. I will pursue your commands, for you expand my understanding. Teach me your decrees, O Lord. I will keep them to the end. Give me your understanding, and I will obey your instructions. I will put them into practice with all of my heart. Make me walk along the path of your commands, for that is where happiness is found. Give me an eagerness for your laws rather than a love for money, and turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. Reassure me of your promise made to those who fear you. Help me abandon my shameful ways. For your regulations are good. I long to obey your commandments. Renew my life with your goodness. Let's read the first verse again. I lie in the dust. Revive me by your word. I lie in the dust. Revive me by your word. Um, I was talking to somebody literally this morning about a, a friend who has bought into the health and wealth prosperity gospel approach to life. And I often wonder what health and wealthers do with the reality of pain in life, of affliction in life, of suffering in life. It's there, it's real. And affliction, pain, and suffering don't happen because you lack faith. They happen because you are made of skin and bones and you live in a broken world. That's the reality. That's the truth. And we sing this song this morning. Great is your faithfulness to me. And yet some of us walk in today with afflictions and suffering. Kim asked yesterday, she's, she's asking about uh, Psalm 119, and it uses the word afflictions later in, in the passage. And she said, what are the afflictions the psalmist is going through? And unfortunately, this is one of those times that the human commentary didn't know. I, I said, I don't know. I don't know what he was going through. What I know is that he was a human being. And he suffered a lot of pain. And it's been an interesting week in our family. Uh, Kim's parents' things, many of them from the house, moved to our house after their death and the selling of the home. And they've been sitting downstairs in boxes waiting, waiting to be gone through. And so over the last couple of weeks, she's started going through some of those items, seeing just memories of the past and things that happened in the family. Lots of notes. They kept way better. Uh, uh, the notes on us is we lived, we died, okay? I mean, it's just, they, they kept notes on everything, including the houses where they lived and, and all sorts of things. They kept a program from a church that was, was part of the family for, for years and years, uh, going back to the 1850s. And, and in, it, it, in one of their anniversary things, it's talking about the era of the Civil War and saying it was a time of tremendous affliction for the church. Basically, as there were sides drawn and, and people hating on each other in church, they wondered if they would survive. There was affliction. There was real affliction going on. This past week, I got a call from my mom. Her oldest sister died. 
uh, 87 years old. She's home with Jesus. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but I'm sure, I'm sure your families are perfect. My family's weird. We got, a, we got a lot of broken and a lot of problems. And my aunt, I'm going to be honest with you, my aunt was not the nicest lady. Caused a lot of pain for my mom in particular. It was hard. It was hard. And you know what? It's because of my aunt that her family came to know Jesus. She introduced my mom to Jesus. And my mom introduced me to Jesus. And your family introduced you to Jesus. And someday a little baby's going to get the opportunity to get to know Jesus. Because of a woman who wasn't particularly nice. You see how it works? We want everything to line up perfectly. God used one of the most painful people in our life to give us one of the greatest gifts we could ever receive. <laughs> Great is your faithfulness to me. So whatever the affliction is you're going through today, whatever the problem, whatever the pain, I'm not saying look for the silver lining. Blah. It's not in the Bible, by the way. Um, <laughs> But what is in the Bible is all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. God uses the garbage to bring about his glory. And so I wonder today, as you walk to communion, is there something in your life that was an affliction that turned out to be something that brought you to a better place with God that you can thank him for today? Or even in your moment of affliction today, you go, we're not there yet. But great is your faithfulness to me. And I choose to trust who you are over what my circumstances say. And so we walk to communion, tables at the front, tables at the back, gluten-free on either side, here up front as well as the table in the back. Reflect on that as we go. Lord God, wherever we are in this life, whatever we're going through today, <clears throat> we choose to look at you. We choose to turn our eyes to you. Even if we are laying in the dust, we, we turn our eyes to your word for hope. We turn our hearts to you uh, for help. We love you, and we thank you that we are loved by you. In Jesus' name, amen. We started a series last week. We're calling it, Can I Trust the Bible? We want to take a look at this book and, and try to understand it a little bit better. I, I say we started it this past week, but in reality, we started it during the last series because it was while we were in 2 Timothy that we came across that verse that's so common that says all Scripture is God-breathed. It's the breath of God, the Spirit of God breathed. And from that, we received words that were profitable, that were uh, useful, for correction, training, instruction, and righteousness, we've received words that help us to be equipped for every good work God has for us to do. And while we're in that series, we looked at the fact as well from 2 Peter chapter 1 that every prophecy that was given from Scripture was not simply something that a, that a prophet imagined or made up, but holy men of God, Scripture says, were moved by the Holy Spirit. And, and the description there is similar to winds in a sail. They were moved along, carried along by the Spirit of God. And so we, we looked uh, in some depth at, at how we got the Bible last week, how that came to us, the author. We looked at the author, that the author is, is God himself, and that he has some things that he wants to say to his people. He did not simply create us and then leave us to figure it out, 
but he gave us a book that, that we, can, we can know him and understand him. We not only looked at the author, but we looked at the audience. We looked at the recipient. We looked at us, the people who, who receive this word. And as we receive this word, we know we have several options in terms of how we can receive it. For some, they receive it with the spirit of the cynic. The cynic, the cynic has his or her mind made up even before they see or hear a fact. They've, they've decided, closed mind, boom, I know, I know better. That's it, over period. And they make brash assumptions and bold statements that aren't really founded always in fact, but, but the, the, their emotion behind it just says, I'm not even going to think about it. I don't even want to give it a second thought. A lot of people approach the Word of God with a cynical spirit that says, you got to be kidding me. A book that old, you actually believe in that thing? You believe God somehow spoke and you have his word? Are you kidding me? How dumb are you? That's, that's the approach of the cynic, right? I, I got to admit, for me, okay, I, I tend to be a little bit cynical about, about government right? I get a little cynical. I'm like, I, what good can come from that? Well, you know, I mean, really, magic answers are going to fall from the sky. I know that people's hearts are corrupt, right? And when you get power and a human heart, things go bad. As a cynic, I can just write it off and say, it's all bad, wipe it out, we don't need it. It's the wrong approach, the totally wrong approach. The more correct approach to the Bible and toward anything in life is that of the skeptic. The skeptic has questions, legitimate questions. The skeptic wonders. The skeptic says about something like government, hey, there's, there's power and there are people that are broken, but, but can I actually take the time to look at whether or not there are some good people doing good things? Guess what? We have some people in our church that are involved in government. They're good people doing good things. The cynic would just wipe it all out. The skeptic says no. No, you got to look at it and look at the pieces and see how things come together. The same is true for the Word of God. It is good to come to the Word of God and say, I wonder. We should wonder. We say this book was written and we receive it for all things related to faith and practice. Everything we believe about our relationship with God, about ourselves, everything we believe is founded on this book. And every way we're supposed to act flows from this book. Well, I would hope before you decide to trust a book, because Pastor Dennis says it's good, I would hope that you'd stop and say, is it really trustworthy? Should I be putting my trust in this book? We should all approach it with a degree of skepticism, asking the questions of it. Now, here's the reality. There's going to come a point with this that we've got to approach this with faith and trust. And again, like I said last week, some of you hear me say faith and trust, and you're like, ah, there's the magic pastor answer. You say faith, you say trust, and I'm just supposed to swallow everything that's, that's written there. I'm just supposed to go along. I'm just supposed to believe. Having said that, we are people of faith and trust in every area of life. One of the things I love about our church property and this, this parking lot we have out here, more of the students of Southfield have learned how to drive in this parking lot than probably any other place in Shanahan. Literally yesterday, I pull up and here's a student circling the lot, doing the game, learning out there. 15-year-old gets that permit. They're ready to go. I love the way this works. They sit down in the driver's seat probably for the first time or one of the first times, they sit down, they put their hands on the wheel, they put one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake, and you say, no, 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 that's not the way it works. But, 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 trust me, I know. One foot, right foot, one, 
You're going to touch each with one foot. Let's tie the other one off. And so they go ahead and they, they put their foot on the brake and they grab the gear shifter and put it into deer, D or the, or the gear shifter or the gear shifter, wherever yours is. They grab it and they put it into D and they pull their foot off the brake and the car starts to move. And for this moment, you have kind of this euphoric fear. Uh, if you're the passenger, just fear. But you have this euphoric fear as this machine is just moving. How many 15-year-olds know all the mechanics behind how that machine works? Do you have to know all the mechanics behind how it works before you're allowed to sit down and do that? Some of you are going, well, they should. That would get them to 27. But anyway, you know, no, you don't have to know. You just, you know that when you take your foot off that brake and the car is in D, it starts to move. You have a degree of faith that that's the way it works. Now, I know somebody's saying, well, that's not really faith. Yes, it is. You didn't understand it completely, but you trusted it would work. We know the Bible works. We trust in it, in part because we know it works. But we need more. We need to understand some things about the Word of God. And, and we're coming to this today. If, if this is the God-breathed Word, there are two legitimate questions I think every one of us has to ask. How do we know that what's in the Bible belongs in the Bible? You know, I read the Song of Solomon, I'm like, that's no Paul. You know, does that belong in the Bible? It's kind of weird. Um, now you're all going to go home and read Song of Solomon. <clears throat> How do I know there isn't something missing? How do I know that, you know, Moses didn't have 15 commandments and dropped one down the, road, down the, down the, uh, down the hill and God just said, the ten are good, just stick with that. How do I know? How do I know? How do I know that there isn't something else out there that's supposed to be in this book? And so this morning we're going to look at the composition of the book some criticism, and I'll explain what I mean by that, and finally, consistency of the book overall. Let's start with composition. Our Bible, if you were to open one up today, is divided into two sections. The first section is bigger. It's called the Old Testament. The second section is smaller, called the New Testament. Our, our Old Testament has 39 books in it, 39 different writings in it, written by plus minus 35 authors. About 35 authors wrote the Old Testament. And it's written over a span of about 1,500 years. Somewhere in the 1,400 BCs, you either, have, you either have Genesis or Job written. One of the two is the first of the books of the Bible. So over a span of about 1,500 years, you have the Bible coming to us. This was initiated 3,400 years ago. You know, you think you got some old books in your, in your library. The oldest book you have in your library is the one you carry to church. 3,400 years ago, this book was initiated. We received the Old Testament from the Hebrew people, from the Jewish people. And, and the Hebrew scriptures uh, are, are the exact same composition as ours, but the numbers come out a little bit differently. And I want you to see why. They refer to the Hebrew scriptures as the Tanakh, and I'll show you in a minute why they use that word. They believe in the five books of the law, just like us, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books from Moses. Then they have eight books that they call the prophetic writings. Interestingly, among the prophetic writings are things like Joshua and Judges. So some of the things that we would not think of as prophecy, they put in that section. And then they have 11 books that they call the writings for a total of 24 versus our 39. You're like, okay, you said they're the same, but different numbers, what's going on? They don't first and second everything the way we do. It's Chronicles, Kings, Samuel. So they do that. Plus, all the minor prophets, the littler of the prophets, are all smashed together in one book. 
So you get a different numbering, but it's the exact same amount of books. I, I grabbed this chart off the internet. I love this. This, this fellow or woman shows us how, how these things come together. They, they refer to it as the Tanakh, and you see the way the, they have the, the reddish pink and the blue and then the purple. Those three letters come from the three different sections. So when they refer to the Hebrew Bible, they refer to the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so Tanakh stands for Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, and you have the beginning of each of those and the sections that flow from them. You see in their, in their prophets, they have something called former prophets and latter prophets, and then they also divide, I'll show you on this chart a little bit better, they divide out the pre-exilic, or in other words, the writings that happened before the exile to Babylon, and the writings that come after the exile to Babylon. So if you're reading a Hebrew Bible, it is not at all in the order of ours. They don't end with Malachi, the Italian prophet. They end with, they end with Chronicles. They end on down here at the end with Chronicles. So you go from Chronicles to the birth of Jesus. It's a little bit different. Now it's interesting, you go into the, into the New Testament and you remember the people called the Samaritans. Their Bible is even a little bit different. They don't believe in any of the writings and the prophets. They only hold to the Torah. Five books of the law, that's it. So you're like, what do you do with that? And then you have another group. You know, if you're a former Catholic, you, you find yourself opening that Bible and saying, there are some things in there that aren't in my NIV. What's going on here? Books like Tobit and Judith and, and Syriac, and books like Baruch and others, Maccabees that are in there. And these are called the Apocrypha. Apocrypha isn't a bad word. It isn't a bad name. It simply means the things hidden away. And so they have extra books in their Old Testament. So you have the Samaritans who are saying, go with only five. The, the Catholics who are saying, add a few more. How do we know which Old Testament we're supposed to go for? Let's start with the Apocrypha. Why do we exclude it? Well, first of all, they originated during the 400 years of silence. So the period between the end, the last prophet speaking, and Jesus being born, there is a dramatic pause there is no prophetic message. And yet during that time, some people wrote histories of the Jewish people. And so it came during the 400 years of silence. There are some provable historical inaccuracies as well as provable theological inconsistencies with other books of the Bible. And we do not have time to go through all of them this morning. I'm sorry. Um, they're not quoted in the New Testament by Jesus or anybody else. And I'll tell you what, you just you put in the word scripture into a concordance and you look at the number of times the Old Testament is quoted by people in the New Testament. Not once do you see any of the Apocrypha appear. There's also this warning by a guy named Jerome. Jerome happens about 300 AD and Jerome takes what was the Greek Septuagint. So some people took the Hebrew Bible, wrote it in Greek, and then he takes the Greek Septuagint and, and writes it into Latin. And when he makes it into Latin for the church, he makes this disclaimer. He says, I'm going to include the Apocrypha. It doesn't belong in the Bible. It doesn't belong. And ironically, through the years, there was this evolution toward it ultimately being included in the Catholic Bible. It's not part of the Jewish Old Testament. We go with the Jewish Old Testament as our Old Testament. Now, there is value behind the Apocrypha, just like there's value behind reading Chuck Swindoll or any, of, any other Christian writer. There's value in that it can provide a historical perspective and it can be inspirational. But there's a difference between being inspirational and being inspired. So what are the qualifications then for inclusion of an Old Testament book? Well, one had to do with the identity of the author. 
Moses comes down a mountain with some, with some stone tablets saying these are from God. Not a lot of people going, well, should we include that in Scripture? Uh, yeah, yeah. Prophets are saying, thus saith the Lord. Should we include that in Scripture? Duh. I mean, of course we include that in Scripture. We see a lot of the Old Testament referenced by Jesus as he's speaking, referenced by New Testament authors. And then I'm going to leave this last one until we talk about the New Testament, but it's affirmed by councils and historians. And I'll talk about the role of that in a minute. Let's go over to the New Testament. Wow, am I talking fast today? We have no choice. We'll never get to lunch. Okay, (laughs) New Testament. 27 books, eight authors over a 50-year span. So as opposed to, you know, a 1,500-year span, this is happening in, wow, less than my lifetime. Shorter, shorter span altogether. Still think about it. When a book is written these days, a publisher contacts an expert and says, I'd like a book on X. Here's the topic. Here's the advance. Spit it out in six months to a year. Can you imagine a book that's written over the course of 50 years? A book that's written over the course of 1,500 years? Totally different in nature, right? you got this span. What's the qualification for inclusion? Well, first of all, books written by apostles. So, let's see if I can do this right. Matthew, John, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd... I'm sorry, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon... 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. Those ones are written by apostles. They're all written by apostles. So the vast majority of the Old Testament comes to us from the apostles. Why the apostles? Why not someone else? Well, Paul and others make reference to the idea that the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. It's the prophets and the apostles. These are, these are the people that give us the word of God, the apostles and the prophets. They're the, they're the foundation. They're the, and Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. He makes a similar reference in Ephesians chapter 3 of this. He says, but now by his spirit, he has revealed this truth to the holy apostles and prophets. So there's this revelation. They're, they're the foundational figures of the church. But here's the thing. There are books that are not written by apostles. So what happens with those? Well, another reason for inclusion was that they were a close associate of Jesus. So, look at these three books in particular, James, Jude, and John. James, Jude, and, uh, I'm sorry, James, June, and Mark, those are the books. James is a half-brother of Jesus, and also mentioned in Acts chapter 15 as a person who was part of that first council in Jerusalem when they're trying to determine for Paul whether, what the role is of circumcision for a new believer who's a Gentile. So they have this this meeting of the minds of the church to affirm what they believe Scripture says. So you have James, the brother of Jesus. You have Jude, the brother of Jesus. And then John Mark is one one of that broader group. You have the group of 12 apostles and then the 70 and then the 120. He's part of the 70. So he's been a, he's been a nonstop eyewitness follower of Jesus along the way. So you have people who have been eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus. Beyond that, though, you have others who are close associates of apostles. And that falls to Luke. Luke is right along the side, right alongside Paul all the time. I mean, he's mentioned again and again in epistles. He wrote Luke and makes clear at the beginning of Luke, I've collected stories from eyewitnesses. And here this is for you, Theophilus. Theophilus being, I'm bringing this to Greek people to understand who Jesus is. And then he writes Acts. 
some of which he collected stories from people who lived it, and some of it he's living it. He's on the missionary journeys with Paul, so he's writing the history, which leaves us then with Hebrews. What do you do with Hebrews? Because you look all over Hebrews and there's no author. Should it have been included at all? Up until more recent history, Hebrews was always assigned to Paul. People believe Paul was the writer. More recently, people look and go, well, the language isn't quite the same. It's a little more sophisticated Greek. Was it really Paul? We're not really sure. There, there's one theory, I think, it's, I think it's actually got some validity, that this was not necessarily a writing of Paul, but a teaching of Paul. And somebody took the time to scribe down the things that he was teaching. Nonetheless, I do believe there is some validity. There is some validity for referring to Paul as the possible, as the possible, as the possible author of Hebrews. So it gives you an idea of why these were concluded. If that's the case, then, then the New Testament, the canon as is referred to, this authoritative set of 27 books, is closed when the apostles die. So once that first, once the charter members are gone, there is no addition to Scripture beyond that. Another indication that it should be included or qualification is theological, theological continuity. It's amazing that a book written by this many authors over that many years has continuity throughout. We don't have one person saying one thing, another person saying another thing, and we're trying to figure out the clash. Now, there, were, there are some that wonder whether or not James belongs in the New Testament. Uh, Martin Luther questioned it. He thought James taught a theology of works, works salvation. And we went through James, so we saw clearly that is not what James was saying at all. Paul teaches justification by grace through faith alone. James teaches justification by grace through faith alone. And that faith will prove itself through good works. Too many people want to say, I'm a Christian, put the label on them, and then live like the devil and say, but I got the label, I'm wearing the label. No, all you're doing is wearing the label. Faith, by its very nature, results in good works, just like babies by their very nature, put the same thing in their diaper every time. It's part of the way they work. By its nature, faith, they weren't conflicting. They were actually teaching the exact same thing. And we see that theological continuity throughout. We also see that there are times that, that the New Testament author was actually referenced by another person in the Bible as a writer of Scripture. So you have this beautiful comment by, by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he's talking about Paul, and he literally says, sometimes Paul is hard to understand. I'm so glad Peter said that, because sometimes Paul is hard to understand. And he says, some people twist the things he says, and you look toward the bottom and it says, they twist the things he says just as they do with other parts of Scripture. He doesn't say just like they do with Scripture, other parts of Scripture. He's already recognizing Paul's writings as on the plane with Scripture. Which brings us back to this part that I talked about at the beginning, the affirmation of councils and historians. I think we as evangelicals, as people who, who believe in the 66 books of the Bible, have been too quick to say, well, look, the Council of Nicaea affirmed it, or the Council of Trent affirmed it, or this council, or that council. You had these church councils that would gather, whether it was the church council in Jerusalem, the leaders of Jerusalem, or from the known world at that time that would gather. And some say, well, this particular council in, in 300 said this is the Bible. The truth is, the Word of God was being recognized uh, as it was being contemporary to the time that it was being written. 
Again, Moses doesn't come down the mountain with the tablets. Moses doesn't come with the law. And, and 500 years later, some committee gets together and says, yeah, I think that's part of the Bible. People were actually contemporaneously recognizing the legitimacy of the Old Testament and New Testament books as Scripture. They were recognizing them by nature. And what happened with the councils as well as historians is they were simply affirming what was already known. So very early on in these church councils, very early on with historians who were not even Christians, who had no stake in the game, they're identifying Scripture as Holy Scripture, and they're identifying the books, the elements that were parts of the Holy Scripture. So when it comes down to it, councils were great. They debated difficulties and controversies. More often than not, they got together to ding a heresy, Marcion and others. A council was gathered just for that sake, and they affirmed what was accepted. They did not approve what was Scripture. They affirmed what was already known as Scripture. So that brings us to, I think, one of the more important questions. If that's what was supposed to be in the Bible, is anything missing? Is there a book out there somewhere that we don't have? And, and I, would, I would refer to uh, 2 Corinthians in particular, where Paul's talking about the fact that he wanted to make another visit with them. He knew it would be painful. He sent a painful letter instead. The painful letter wasn't received well, but ultimately it led to good. And that reference to the painful letter, the sorrowful letter, is not a reference to 1 Corinthians. It's a reference to another letter that we do not have. Now, some might ask, well then, should we have it? Should it be in Scripture? Does it belong there? What happened? Well, I mean, should we have these other books? Here, here's what I know. As I studied logic, there are a couple of things that I think really help in understanding the composition of Scripture. We'll talk about another one next week, the, the, the definition of a contradiction. But this week, the whole idea of an argument from silence. An argument from silence is the worst possible argument. I can't prove what isn't. It's unprovable. You can't prove what isn't. You can only prove what is. You can only prove what you have. So we can talk all day about the possibility that there might could be something out there, but what we know is what we have. Argument from silence are basically bunny trails taking us to places that aren't particularly helpful. And so when it comes down to it, I am confident that what we hold in our hands is what God intended for us. It's got beautiful consistency and ultimately has proven itself to be a life-changing book. I'm going to take a minute to talk about criticism. Criticism, you'll hear this referred to. I'm not talking about criticism as people go and looking at the Bible and saying, ew, I don't like that. I, I'm talking about textual criticism. There's this whole science of trying to figure out what is closest to the original text. We believe the Bible is inspired, inerrant in its original manuscripts. We also know that we don't have an original manuscript sitting around. We don't have one of the books of the Paul that says, see, I'm writing in big handwriting, and all of a sudden, there's a big handwriting. We don't have that. What we have is copies and fragments and, and all, all kinds of things like that that need to be put together to try to figure out what did the original manuscript look like. So I love this. I'll just give you an idea. Let's divide the time down in pre-100, so this is the time of the apostles, 100, 200, 200, 300, 300, 400. So in this particular case, and this is reference to no particular fragment or, or document that's out there right now, making this up for the sake of the presentation. So you have, you have a copy here that's pre-100, way early, and another copy of that is made in 300. 
Okay? Then you have a copy over here from about the same time, and a copy of that is made in 100, and from that, two copies are made. And from that, that copy, three copies are made of that copy. And from this copy, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six copies are made of that copy. What these people do as they're figuring out textual criticism is trying to figure out which is the most reliable text. Which is the most reliable of these? So just looking at them, which one do you think is the most reliable? Do you think the first one's the most reliable? One copy of one? Raise your hand if you think that one. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm afraid he's going to... Yeah, okay. Uh, the second, which is most reliable? You like that one? How about the third? This is, it's kind of interesting. You have a quantity versus quality thing going here, right? You'd think a lot make it better, but maybe not. Maybe if there's only one, it's really pure. But what if this is the worst copyist in the history of humanity? You have one really bad copy, or you have, you have six decent copies. This is what they do. They, there, there are rules and principles for trying to determine what's the best of the best among what we have. And they work through and try to understand those things. So, um, I'm sorry, I had that as a document or as a, as a page so you could see. I should have gone to that. That would have been helpful. Anyway, I love this part. As you're doing the, the searching of ancient manuscripts and trying to figure out just, okay, so if we don't have the original copy but we have copies how do you know those are good copies? How do you know anything? This is what I love about scholarship. You'll find this just about anywhere you look on the, on the internet or in a really good book about textual criticism. Ancient manuscripts comparison charts. So if you look at like Plato's works, if you look at, at Caesar's, uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars, what you find, let's look at Plato, so that's three down. He, he's living 427 to 347, the earliest copy of his book is from 900 A.D., okay? So he's already 1,200 years between the original and the first copy that we have. And they basically found seven copies of his work throughout history. And they have all the other ancient books up there. Look at the New Testament at the bottom. It's written in the first century, 50 to 100, the first copy that we have, the earliest copy we have is from 130. Only, you know, within, within a short time, as opposed, to, as opposed to Plato, within a short time, less than 100 years, we have 5,600 copies. And when you take all those and start to put them together, what you find is a 99.5% accuracy as you're comparing texts in 95 99.5% accuracy of those texts. And by the way, I say 5,600. Look at the bottom note. In addition, there are over 19,000 copies in Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Aramaic languages. There are lots and lots and lots and lots of copies and fragments of Scripture that they're able to go back, look, compare, and start to determine what's going on there. Now, here's what I love. I'm, I'm sitting in a class one day, and the professor was able to say, if you were to take an English Bible, there are a couple things in the English Bible that, that are interesting. You look at uh, John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, the story of the woman being stoned, or about to be stoned, the prostitute. If you look at the bottom, it says, not in the earliest manuscripts. Not in the earliest manuscripts. So, so let me go back to that chart. It might have been in this copy, but it's not in this copy. So 
there's a possibility that it was not part of original scripture. You have the same true of the end of Mark. Mark just ends very abruptly, and there's some wondering if somebody didn't come back and say, this pillow needs to be fluffed a little bit. Let's add an ending. So you have a couple of passages like that where it says not in the, not in the earliest manuscripts. If you're to take that and all the other areas that we have, should it be this or should it be this, it would fill less than one page of Scripture. Less than one page of Scripture would be filled with those areas that we have questions. And not one of them, literally not one of them, has a bearing on our theology. Not one of them. And so when you look at that alone, when you look at the fact that we're dealing with an ancient book that we received the beginning of it from 3,400 years before, and to have that kind of, we're just looking at family documents. Family documents written by the same people and inaccuracies within those documents. And here's over the span of history, and you have less than a page where you have these areas of question. That's pretty incredible. Some of the other things critics get into that are really interesting, especially as you start toward more modern critics, there's a lot of questions about authorship. Almost any modern critic says, if it says written by the Apostle Paul, it wasn't, somebody made it up later. You got to be careful of people like that. Here's the thing. If it says Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and my first thing is, well, it wasn't written by Paul, how can I believe anything else written there if Paul said he wrote it? We believe he wrote it. Um, they also question the date written. They don't believe in the supernatural, much like the Sadducees, so they don't believe in prophecy. So they believe the prophets wrote after the fact. They wrote a prophecy after it happened to say, wow, look at what's coming when it already happened and it looked really neat. Bad news. you got to be careful of those parts. As you're reading different commentators, as you're, as you're Googling things and going, what's this all about? You need to know within criticism, there's definitely a valuable part of biblical text criticism. Try and understand what the original document was. And at the same time, some of the people that are doing this are doing this merely from a knowledge perspective and not from a heart perspective. They don't have a relationship with God. They just have a relationship with scholarship. So we've got to be able to weigh out the two. Let me go to consistency as we close. So, I'm uh, born in 1963. Let's say in 1963, a publishing house said, we want to write an ethic for the American people. That ethic will be written over the course of 60 years. That ethic will include 10 different authors, and those authors will write about human sexuality, those authors will write about the roles of men and women in society. Those authors will write about uh, government and political discourse. Those authors will write about, um, you know, you name it. You're kind of getting the idea. They'll write about these things. None of the authors meet together to talk it through because they're all going to write from a different time according to when they're born and when they come on the scene or whatever. They're not going to gather together to talk about their ideas. What are the chances, what are the chances that from 1963 to 2022, we're going to have a book where we have eight to ten authors saying the same thing about those topics? You know what, folks? We could go back to 2010, right? I mean, again, I, this isn't political at all. I've evolved. You know what I love about the Bible? It don't evolve. The Bible doesn't evolve. God was and is and is to come. He didn't, he didn't 1,500 years ago. Shoot. 
didn't see that coming. There's consistency throughout from beginning to end. That in itself is miraculous. Obviously guided by a single author and not by a collection of people just putting good ideas down on a piece of paper or a piece of stone. There's a consistency throughout Scripture. And that consistency brings itself over into the fact that when you choose to live according to the Word of God, you know what? It works. It works. It's timeless and it is trustworthy. And so, Father God in heaven, I pray that you will help us to put our trust in your word, to believe what you have to say. You are trustworthy, you are good, you have been faithful, and you will continue to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. As we go to next week, we'll be looking at contradictions. That'll be kind of fun. I also, in the email this link this past week, sent you a link to a, a book that I really enjoy by a man named Bill Mounts called Can I Trust the Bible? And um, very, very valuable. He actually started as a person who had great questions about the legitimacy of the Bible. Uh, his father was a, a Greek scholar, and, and he had a lot of questions. And ultimately, he'll go into a lot more detail than we're able to go into on a Sunday morning. So if you need prayer, you can come over here. Diane will be up here during the first service, and we'll be over here to go ahead and say hi to you. If you're new to the church and you're ready to kind of come out of, out of anonymity and say hi, feel free. Enjoy your day.